Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Gospel Doctrine Podcast. This is episode three, The Creation, and I'm here with master photographer and award winner Brian Cox, who is here to talk to us about the aspects of light used in creation, and he's an enthusiast in the Hebrew language, as am I, but he's much more advanced than I am, and I thought it'd be perfect to have him as a guest. Welcome, Brian. Hello, thank you. So I guess as we start talking about the creation, do you have anything to say as we begin? For me, I this is my all-time favorite subject, and we've talked about it over the years, but this is one of the reasons why I started to learn Hebrew. This is one of the reasons I've, I mean, I've spent years just studying volumes on just uh, Hebrew, or I mean, a, a Jewish tradition, trying to understand this particular story, because I find it more and more fascinating each year, and part of that, I think, is trying to put ourselves, as Joseph Smith says, if you really want to understand the scriptures, you have to put yourself in the, the soles or the feet of the author who wrote them. You have to kind of transform yourself into that culture. Um, like even today, when we try to think about, you know, maybe we say, oh, Joseph Smith shouldn't have done this or Brigham Young, whatever. We're, we're looking, that's only 200 years ago, putting our, trying to look at their culture from our day 200 years later. And it's the same going back to the New Testament, same going back to the Old Testament. And this is just a completely different culture, the ancient Near East. And it's all symbolic and it's not that they weren't smart. Like one, a lot of scholars will say, well, when it came to math and stuff, they're cavemen. And that's why they have all of these symbols. And that's why they talk in this form. They're primitive people. They're primitive. That's, the, that's the perception. That's the perception. The truth is they actually, I have a book here from David Medved that shows that if you actually look at their number for pi in Hebrew, not before it's translated into English, I mean, they had pi more accurate than anybody for thousands of years their their pi was you know 3.14 it was like down to like six significant digits it was less than as a percent of accuracy it was like 0.0026 percent accurate and nobody came even close so it's not that they didn't understand where literal stuff came from but they couldn't put any cheese in the pie if there was meat as well (laughs) right Sorry, I I couldn't resist. Yeah. So the point is the creation is we try to read it with our Western mind, which is where did stuff come from? As opposed to what they were trying to say is what's the purpose of things and each level of say orbit or realm or governorship or zone? Like what's the purpose of each zone? And in the end, then what does that mean about us? What's my purpose of life? So there, our process is trying to understand matter. And and we very much come from a, context of the scientific method where we get atoms and we get chemistry and we yep. have physics that we learn in school. And so we think if they're not speaking to us in those terms, then they must not have understood anything. Whereas their, if I'm understanding you correctly, their context was, what is something's function? That's all I care about. And that for me is the element of the story. If you can tell me what the function is, then I can understand where it fits into the story and where I fit in. Yep. And so like to give an example something is created if it has function in their world. So there might be an actual physical temple on the hill, but if it's not consecrated and dedicated and actually have ordinance happening, then the temple doesn't exist. And so in their world, the the temple doesn't exist unless it has a function. And so what they're looking for is what's, what's my function and what's my relationship with everything else? What's my relationship with my wife or spouse? What's my relationship with the world, the animals, everything. What's my role? What we are is what we do. Yep. Okay. So, so well, that... Uh, let me... That leads into another question. Yeah. First of all, 
I looked over the church's manual on the gospel doctrine, and it. I'm going to assume that most people listening to this have heard the creation story. We're not going to spend a lot of time in what the, the church manual talks about, because really all they go over is what is the purpose of the earth? In other words, we read Moses 139. We know that man was given. It's, it's pretty much, in my opinion, a, a very basic recital of what we already know about creation. So assuming you're familiar with the creation story, our purpose today is to get deeper into what the Hebrews would have understood from this story and what what the people who were contemporaries of the Old Testament would have gained on a spiritual level from reading the original Genesis account and the Abrahamic account. The Moses account, we can presume at one time, was the same. So those original accounts of the creation, what would they have gained on a spiritual level? That's what we're after today. And can we gain anything spiritually from studying that as well? That's what we're interested in. Right. And that's how I try to look at it. And the nice thing is, is all the symbols, everything introduced in Genesis, then kind of sets the stage for the rest of Scripture. And so when we start seeing certain phrases, certain symbols used, then later, you know, it makes like the Noah story make sense. It makes Joseph and the many colors make sense. It makes, you know, all these things keep getting used, used over and over and over. Interesting. I'm unaware of that. You'll have to give me some examples as we go. Yeah. And I noticed also a... Even the rhetorical devices of the creation are used throughout the Bible, parallelism being yep. the most prevalent in my mind. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so everything means something. And the, the truth is, if I had my way, and if I, <laughs> if I could teach gospel doctrine, and I... You can't. I can't, no. <laughs> but I would almost want to do it for a couple months straight doing... Oh, just on this one lesson. Yeah, just... And I could do a week on say one layer and then go back, reread it again, just like how you can read a scripture multiple ways. One layer meaning one creation period? Like one, like the whole creation, but maybe there's one layer of meaning. Oh, I see. And then we come back and we could read it as another layer and you're like, holy cow, look at all these lessons. Okay. And we read it again and it'd be layer after layer after layer. And at the end, we could also say, hey, just so you know, because I do personally believe that that also does match up with a physical creation, but that's not what's important in church. Church is about developing wisdom, not trying to improve ourselves in the sciences. That's, that's important on every other day of the week. Yeah. But I, so in that sense, there's, there's layers and there's things that mean multiple things. And we can kind of get into some of that. Yeah, go, go for it. Give us one example. So maybe to start, there's a lot of creation stories in the same time period that are very common to these same group of people. And the Genesis takes that same form of narrative but then twists it in a little bit different way. And it basically is God coming in and saying, no, I'm the real God. And so there's lots of, so we understand kind of. So what's a typical creation story from the time of Genesis? So we've got like the story of Marduk um, and he's got like, you know, there's these, it's always about chaos and there's this mixing with that. And that's the idea is there's matter, but it's mixed together and it's not organized. And so you've got like this primordial, ooze coming up, which is spring water being mixed with salt water. And basically Marduk comes in and says, I'm creating order. And that makes him a creator. And the other thing is, there's always these stories about like a God who has lesser deities and then they get bored and they get tired of doing stuff for themselves. So then they create people to do stuff for them. And what Genesis does is God comes in, the true God comes in and says, I'm going to use that form of narrative. We're going to start off. We're going to talk about the formless and void, the tohu vohu and all of this 
primeval waters and the darkness. And I'm going to set up zones. And that's the other thing. There's always like a story of a zone. Like there's farmland and there's city land. And there's a deity over this and a deity over that. And the Lord says, I'm going to do all that. I'm going to create day and night. And I'm going to put things in charge of that. But I'm not going to use the word sun and moon. Because in Hebrew, those are pagan gods, the, the sun god and the moon god. So and effectively, it's like, it's like God comes in with this box of microphones and he says something and then drops the mic. And then he says something and drops the mic. And it's just mic drop after mic drop of all this stuff that if you were in that day and time, you'd be like, holy cow, this is the true God. And I'm, I have importance because of God. I see. So if you're reading the Book of Mormon from an LDS perspective, you're reading the Book of Mormon and it was written for our day. But the, if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the story of Genesis was written for the people of the of Moses's day they would have read these, right. this creation story and thought how can i worship marduk he's and and by mic drop what i presume you mean is that the scale of god's creation and his grandeur was shown not just through the things all around and through the story itself but through the scale of what he actually created he created the whole earth he created the very light and the very darkness instead of just a localized deity over a particular place. Yep, and he refuses to use the words of deity. Like, he doesn't say sun and moon. He doesn't say shemesh for, for sun. He says the greater light and the lesser light. He very specifically avoids using these words just so that nobody misinterprets, oh, well... I created this other god. I created this other god and put it in charge of the day. He's like, no. I see. The sun's a thing. I never knew that. It's a thing, and it's there, and it's there to govern the day, but it's just a thing. And I'm God. Mic drop. Yeah. And he just keeps, and it's just line after line. So like right off the bat, like if we look at the beginning, it's like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And like right there is like, kind of use a modern phrase, big mic drop. Like he just says in the beginning, and it's not in the beginning of the world. In Hebrew, it's, you know, Barashit, which kind of implies there should be something, but he's just saying in the beginning, I created the heaven and the earth. And we get this phrase. It's one of the first symbols we get, which is heaven and earth together. I didn't just create the sand or the water. And there's examples later in the scriptures of a prophet who can maybe command the earth, but nobody can command heaven and earth. So he's coming in saying, you might believe in some of these other gods, but they're nothing. They're nothing. I'm not even going to name them. I created everything around you, and I created what you can't even see. Why don't you talk a little bit about the concept of light? Yeah, so then, and this is one of my favorite subjects, and I noticed, and in, in, in for those who've never heard of you, you're a, a famous photographer, and especially because you specialize, you do portraits, and you specialize in taking the shape of someone's face and hitting it with light in exactly the right way so they appear to be three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional in a photograph. Right, like light is so my creation. Made, yeah, yeah you made light the study of your life. Yep, a camera is nothing other than a light box. You just f-stop shutter speeds. It's all determining how much light comes in the camera. So obviously when you approach the creation story, you had a special affinity for the concept of light. Yep. And it's always stood out to me. And I don't know what came first, but I, there is a, definitely a connection between me liking the creation story and my subject of choice, which is light. But one of my favorite things is verse three. This is the first time the Lord speaks in all of scripture. And he says, let there be light. And there was light. And one of the most important things to learn that, and it'd be really hard to kind of back into all this. I mean, this is like... <laughs> volumes of books yeah but the the thing is that light the way the the jews read this in the midrash back you know 600 bc is that light 
wasn't actually created. Light existed before the world was, and light is the tool of creation. So in all the others, there's a very specific commanding verb. But here, it's basically the Lord saying, I command light. Light is my tool. And that's a symbolic. One time I brought that up in a lesson. I says, well, you know, light's the tool of the Lord. And someone said, well, the, you know, the Lord is light. And that's, again, thinking things in terms of our Western mentality. We just want to see it a certain way instead of trying to understand the symbols. Okay. But the point is, is that the Lord has so much control over light that there's like, there's, there's, you know, references in, you know, in the old Testament of him wearing light. Like he can actually take it, bend it, wrap it around him. And it's his robe of light. When Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, he arrives on a conduit of light. And when he's finished, he gathers the light around him and leaves on a conduit of light. And it's this idea of light is my ultimate tool. And creation, as Hugh Nibley says, is matter plus light. So we've get this kind of a theme throughout, like we see the earth. The earth is dead matter, if you want to think of it in terms of physics. It's, you know, space rock. And the Lord takes it and he says, let there be light. First, there's tohu vohu, all this dead matter, whatever you want to think about it as asteroids, dust, whatever. And he sparks, he used the word spark in some old Midrash stuff, but he touches it with his finger, it sparks, and immediately we have heaven and earth. And there's actually a story of, in the Midrash, of Abraham being taken up by an angel uh, to see the creation. And the spark is so loud and so scary to him that he looks for comfort to the angel who brought him there. And the angel's also worried because it's so magnificent and he wants to fall on the ground, but there's no ground because nothing's been created yet. It's just this early spark of light. And then later we get the same idea with man. Like the word Adam means man. And it comes from the word Adama, which is dirt. And the Lord basically says, you know, from dust thou art and from dust thou return, you're basically carbon. You're just a big dirt man. And I breathe into you the breath of life. And then we get nephesh, a soul. And when that light leaves, your spirit leaves, you go back to being dirt. And so we get this constant theme of dead matter plus light equals something magnificent. So light is the soul. It is the, the Lord's power. It is energy. For us, it has a physics name for light. We think yep. of it as photons accelerated by energy, leaving an atom, creating colors. But for the Hebrews, it was all of the power of God in one word. And yep. they're both equally valid. And so we could call it the priesthood light, if you want to say something. It'd be the, and that's one of our big goals in life is to grow in light. And if we, you were, you were there as we uh, recorded last week's episode, but we talked about God is more intelligent, meaning he has more light and truth. And yep. what I, what I said in that podcast was that light is the means the Lord uses to gather truth so that he can increase in light and truth and intelligence become the greatest. He, he holds on to truth by using light, by using his power to decide and change himself or, or change his glory. Yeah. And the interesting thing is there's, there's a light source in a physical world, but there's no darkness source. There's no like flashlight that shines out darkness. It's light or it's the absence it's of the light. It's the absence of light. And what eradicates darkness is light. And the same with truth. Like what eradicates lies is truth. And the way you fight bad speech is with good speech. Uh, to use like more of a political. Yeah. Um, but Why don't you talk to us? Tell anybody who doesn't know what the Midrash is. So a lot like how most Christians or most Christians believe the way a lot of Christians are. <laughs> a lot of people named Christensen. <laughs> yeah. um, similarly, like today, the way most Christians believe is that you don't add to or take away from the scriptures, right? Like 
back then there were individual books they weren't compiled but we have that thing in revelations and deuteronomy like, yeah. don't add to or take away well the jews felt the same way but there's backstories to all of this and if you were to write it in say the margins of your scriptures it could get transcribed in to future scriptures so it was never written it was always just passed down from rabbi to rabbi but eventually about uh after some of the councils and various things after like three four hundred bc and about 600 bc a rabbi says you know what this is going to get lost let's write it down so he kind of had this council of rabbis and it's it's about 10 volumes it's kind of complex oh you're saying the midrash wasn't written down no and so this is all just it's for, it's, a, it's a thousand year it's a millennia of old just oral tradition yep and at some point they said we should write it down but we're going to write it down separately and it's always presented in a certain way. It's like a question, and then all of this commentary from the various rabbis where it says, well, I learned this from my rabbi, and I learned that from my rabbi, and then it comes to the actual conclusion. Well, this is the true answer. And then it goes to the next question. And I so find it a, fascinating, but it's, you have to really get the culture to, otherwise you just read it, and you're like, this is a bunch of strange stories that makes no sense. Yeah. Okay. But, so, so that's the Midrash. That's the Midrash, and particularly the Midrash Rabbah, which is the most accurate and most compiled and what's so fascinating about it is, yeah, it's not the scriptures. I can't prove some of this, but there's some of these things. Some of these stories are so Mormon. You would think that like Joe Smith transmitted himself, trans, you know, back in time, saw this, came forward, said something. And then it's not even proven for years later. And when this yeah. finally gets translated into something people could read and they go, holy cow, how did you know? These so tell us more about the light used in creation. So one of my favorite symbols is that right? Day one is the light is created, but the sun's not created till day four. And so that confuses people because they want to hear it in terms of a physical, what happened first, what happened next? And it's like, well, where's, if there's light, where's the sun? Doesn't make sense. Skip. But the whole point is this, what they call the primordial light, this early light. The way I like to look at it is it's, it's the light of God. It's his light. And then on day two, we get the firmament, the veil, which is really fascinating. We could do a whole thing on just that, but it blocks the light. And yeah, I guess that's the purpose of one. Yep. <laughs> Just like, and, the, and the, the physical symbol is it's the horizon, right? We have the waters above and the waters below. If you're standing on an ocean shore and you look out, you got the ocean, that's the waters below, and you got the waters above, which is the sky, and you got this horizon separating the two. Okay. And just like the earth, how the atmosphere protects the earth from the UV rays, similarly, the, the firmament blocks this light from God which is almost too powerful for us. We can't accept it. We can't, it would burn us up because we're not, to use a, a Mormon term, translated. Yeah, which is true of, if we didn't have the Earth's magnetic field, we would be burned up by cosmic radiation from the sun. Yep. So it's, that's interesting that even when even when we're not looking for those, those parallels, they sort of leap out at you. And that's why I think, like, even though we try to read physical creation, I do think down the road, we're in heaven, and God will say, by the way, here's how the world was actually physically created in terms of physics and chemistry. And yeah, it does line up. Yeah. But that wasn't the whole purpose of this. So anyway, he, and so Nibley writes a lot about this called the treasuries of light. And you have laser that later the Nazareans who are called the children of light because they got all of their ordinances. They go through the temple, they get their ordinances, they live up to their covenants and they're called the children of light. And they are the, um, the heirs to the, almost like this bank vault of light that's being sown and kept in reserve for the righteous and i think it's such a a beautiful symbol and and then later we're created in the lord's image but we're not fully in his image like we're not 
we're a shadow. That's the word Selim. It's, it's we're in his image, but we're kind of like a shadow of him. Like we might look like him physically. You know, we have a body and hands and fingers, but in the end, we're still just a minute version. He's omnipotent and we're yes. not. But it's our job in life to still make ourselves and continue to make ourselves in his image and continue along this path of light. And when we do, we get more and more light. And I've got a great scripture that might be fun to come back to at the end. Um, but it's DNC 50, 23 through 24. And it says, And that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. And that which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that's the whole purpose of life. We're supposed to continue to gain more and more light, more wisdom, to really understand truth. And then it says, and that light, light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And that's this idea of perfect day. And then is a back to a reference to Genesis where we get the word Sohar, which means dual light or bright, bright noonday. It's like so bright, almost as the way uh, Joe Smith describes, you know, brighter far than noonday sun when he describes the light of God. So we're now, it seems like if we're going through this story, we've seen that uh, you've talked a little bit about let, the, let there be light, separate the light from the darkness, which is uh, the first creative period of Genesis, at least, and then separate the waters above the firmament from the waters below the firmament. Let's continue on. Yeah. And so we have some constant themes. And one of the biggest is making distinctions. The Lord, in effect, like first these things are combined and the Lord separates them and draws a line and says there's a distinction between this and that. Like in the beginning, there's a distinction between light and darkness. So the the work of creation from the from the scriptural accounts is almost equivalent to the work of division. Right. It's because the word holy, kadosh, really is in effect like making distinctions. Um, Saying that God is separate from man, or the things you do on the Sabbath are separate from the things yep, you do on the, the other Sabbath day. Sabbath is a great example. Like, what makes a Sabbath day holy? The mere fact that we separate it and from the other days and distinctly do things that are different. And Mormons, we have that word peculiar, which means, you know, separate or removed from. And that's the whole idea is we're supposed to be more, more holy. We're supposed to, con- you know, conduct ourselves on a different level than everything else around us. And in the world, we get a lot of... This idea that man's the same as an animal, or we're just basically an animal, and a lot, there's a lot of talk about animal needs and all this kind of stuff, but the whole idea of holy is separating ourselves from yeah. animalistic in, nature. In modern philosophy, the reasons for everything that man does is you have to go back to evolution. Find some reason why a caveman would have needed to do it, and that's the reason why you have an urge to do it. And therefore, the, nat- the natural man is man, and we therefore are justified in all of our animal desires. And that and, and that's the separation that God made. When he created us in his image, he was saying, I'm going to draw a line between man and the animals, but you have to choose to stand on one side of that line. You can stand on the side of the animals if you want. Yep. But if you want to create yourself in the image of God, you have to choose to stand on the side of God. And that's where our agency, that's where the line of our agency is firmly drawn. There's always a choice which side of that line we're going to be on. Right. And you'll hear it sometimes people in today's world, they'll say humans and other animals. Yeah. Which is kind of equating us by all the, the taxonomy. Same. Well, I mean, if you study taxonomy in high school biology, you learn the little charts that draw the lines from the animal kingdom to the, the chordates and the vertebrates and the mammals. And, and then humans fit squarely within that. We are an animal in that taxonomy. 
And yet God gives man dominion. Let's talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Yeah. So in all the old creation stories outside of the Genesis one, there's always that God creates his zones and then he puts things in charge of those zones, you know, and similarly, man is the last thing to be created and he puts him on the earth and he says, in effect, you're supposed to be a steward, a governor to rule over the earth. And that means, I mean, there's so much to that, but really it says like, we're more important than the animals. We're more important than all these things. And yes, we're supposed to also be stewards. We're supposed to govern responsibly, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of... It's it's pretty clear by the way that men are, yeah. men and women are, that we are going to rule over the world. We are just smarter than any other creature. Therefore, God gave us dominion not by saying uh, the animals will all obey you or you're going to be stronger or you're going to have an appetite for all of their flesh. What The way he gave us dominion was by making us more intelligent, giving us more light and truth. And therefore, we have the ability... And once again, we have this clearly demarcated line. We have, on the one side, we can exploit the natural world, destroy it, and treat it as a natural man would, or we can preserve it and uplift it, and it will reward us. And But by the by man's very nature, we have dominion. Anyone who... And there's really no disagreement between, let's say, the, the most avid of environmentalists and the most avid of scriptorians here. Anyone would agree that man has the most control over his environment out of any creature. Man yep. has dominion by nature of his nature. And therefore, now, what should we do with that? It's, Genesis isn't necessarily, it's, it's sort of silent on that issue. And that's because I think they would have understood pretty clearly what they should do with it. And yeah, but we have to dealing... answer that question for ourselves today. Yeah, I think so. And they were dealing with a lot of the same stuff. That this Back then, there was nature worship and animal worship. And basically, you know, these things are more important than man. And they're making a comeback. And yeah, they... <laughs> and these same philosophies. I mean, I saw, I started some documentary and it showed a picture of the earth and it showed all the lights on around the earth. And the opening statement was, look at how sick the earth is. All these lights are the sickness on the earth. Like man's the plague. The earth's more important. But what Genesis is saying is, if there is no man and a tree falls, it doesn't matter. Like the whole, all of this is here for us. And we're supposed to be, yes, good stewards. But at the same time, we're supposed to also understand the function. The function back to the us. Back to the function of the earth is to give a, a domicile to man. Yep. So we get all these constant. And so that's another you know, a mic drop in the fact, like the Lord says, no, this is where, this is where man stands. So all these other creation stories will say things like, you know, it's man's job to clothe and feed the gods. And cause they just got tired of clothing and feeding themselves. And God basically comes in and says, no, I created man. I don't need man. Just like the sun doesn't need the earth, but the earth needs a sun. Like I'm creating man and, but I'm specifically making him important and I'm giving him rule and dominion over the earth. And that is just, the exact opposite. Basically saying, I'm extending my rule through man, and it's man's job to do my work. And what is that? So man, if, man's, man, if, man, is, dis, if man is defined by his function, what is his function? Um, then to do the Lord's work. And so that when we get to the Sabbath, the Lord stops doing the work of creation, but he doesn't stop doing his work. His work continues. And similarly, that's, you know, his work is our work. And so, yes, on... Maybe on a daily basis, we're supposed to grow an intellect so we can be better at our jobs. But really, the big purpose of life is to have joy. And I actually think even a better way of saying it, I like Hugh Nibley's way. He says that the purpose of life is to forgive and repent. And 
that is the biggest thing. He's like, everything else is meaningless without those two things. That's the things that the angels envious for is the ability to forgive and repent. Interesting. So uh, let's, let's move on with the creation story. Yeah. Where are we? Are we? So one of the things, so as we go through the days, you'll notice there's three days and then three days repeat. And I, I find that fascinating. And then he rests. And then he rests. Okay, so and there's so like two periods of, of three. Two periods of three, and they... In what way are they a repetition? So like on day one, we get the separation of light from darkness. But then on day four, as it repeats, we get the lesser light and the greater light. The, the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. Okay. So first we get the zones, and then we get the function and something to rule those zones. So it's almost like the spiritual creation and a physical yep. creation. It's almost like the same parallelism there. Yep. And we don't we don't actually read about that in Genesis explicitly. And what you're saying is that idea is buried within the text if you and know where even, to look. Yeah, rabbis in the Midrash they even talk about that, that it's, you know, one's like an intellectual or a spiritual creation and one's the actual physical creation. All right, so let's go on to day two and day five. So day two, we get the separation of the waters above and the waters below. So it's the sky and the water separated by the firmament, the veil. But then we get those animals that populate that. So we get the birds to rule the sky and the fish oh, interesting. to rule the water. Yeah, and it's interesting that he wouldn't just say all the animals. He would say specifically where they're going to live. Yep, and so it's, it's the zone first and then the function and okay. the item to rule that function. All right, well, now the suspense is killing me. <laughs> so then day three, we get the separation of the earth, the Eretz, from the water, the Mayim. They get the The, the islands the land, of the earth, the actual land masses, and the from seas. From the water. And then he creates the animals for the land and the creeping things for the sea. Okay. And there's a little bit of a distinction between fright fish and this, and, but it's, it's just so that they, the narrative can continue. And there's the particular reason for that, but... There's a lot of form of narrative that yeah. Why he talks about broken. creeping things separately from fish, right? Yeah, and there are two two sort of in in the Genesis account two two days in which animals are sort of dealt with. Yep, and then but on day three there's almost kind of like if you want to think of it like a double portion. There's two things that happen. So on day three we get seeds and fruits, uh-huh. and then on the end of day six we get man and woman. Oh, interesting. So that lines right up again. And so there's so much, that's why when people read this, they go, well, that's out of order. It should be this way. That's how I want to hear it. Uh-huh. But no, it's like, no, this is f- done this way for a reason. And it's... Yeah, there's a beautiful symbolism yeah. there. And the, the way the story is told is almost an element of the story that itself, if you know where to look. Yep. And so even though some of the words will differ from Genesis, Abraham, and Moses, if you look at... Let's talk about that. Uh, just this... The order of the, the order, different things, yeah. Day one, separation, day two, separation, And the temple. Three, we have four different orders of the way things go and separations of how they come about. Yeah, but those three that we have in Scripture, the, the days line up. Okay. Even though the words might be different, it's still light and darkness, waters and waters, waters from land, and then it comes back again and fills those zones. So you can still tell this same sort of, and, and uh, when we were talking about parallelism earlier, as a brief introduction for anyone who doesn't know what it is. It's, this is one of the biggest... Yeah. yeah, this is a perfect example. It's the way of repeating an idea, but with a slight change to emphasize the aspect of that change. So the idea of parallelism is that something is repeated for emphasis or for illumination. So an idea, usually twice, but sometimes more. And a lot of people in seminary learn a, sp- a special case of parallelism, which is chiasmus, where a uh, scriptural passage will start out with one idea, go on to another idea, and then repeat all those ideas in reverse order. That's uh, that's one example of parallelism. It's more complex, but 
at its simplest form, it's just a repetition. And the second repetition will be slightly different. And usually by examining that difference, you can learn something. So an example is in the fourth chapter of Genesis, one of the descendants of Cain, Lamech kills a man and he says, I have killed a young man. I've slain a man to my sorrow and a young man to my hurt. So on the one hand, you learn that the man caused him sorrow. And on the, on the repetition, you learn it was a young man and he hurt him. And we could go into more. Oh, I mean, yeah. that there's a ton. You, like if you, you don't say, have to turn the page more than once or twice in the in the Old Testament without finding an example of it. Yeah, like if you want to say the heaven of heavens, like it's just Shema HaShemayim. You're basically repeating Shemayim, like yes. heaven twice. Yes. Or whoa, whoa. And so the answer, the question that we ask is, why did they do this? To them, it was very natural. But there is a reason why, just like we're discovering with what you're saying. We're learning that the zone is first created and then what is going to populate that zone? What is going to rule over it? And the comparison is drawn by simply telling the story in a certain order. The comparison is drawn between a seed and a fruit and a man and a woman without having to say a man is like a seed. So we use similes and metaphors, yep. whereas the Hebrews used parallelism. Yep. And a lot of puns, too. And puns, yes. Puns they're are their very, yeah, they're, highest they form puns. of intellectual <laughs> achievement. Yeah, and so the Lord's coming in and saying, okay, I'll match your culture. I'll, you've got all these other creation stories that are kind of similar. I'm going to take the same form, but then I'm going to twist it in such a way to say... To show you that I'm the master that of That I am the master. That No, like when, when the Lord appears uh, to like Abraham, he calls himself El Shaddai, or when he appears to Moses, he says, I am. And he's basically, you know, I am means the self-existent one, the one that didn't need to be created. Yes. Um, and when he says El Shaddai, it's... There's that phrase heaven and earth, and the definition is the one that created heaven and earth. We get right back to uh, Bereshit, the the first uh, chapter of Bereshit of uh, Genesis. The very first day, yeah. Right, where it says, like, I created the heaven and earth. He's like, he who created heaven and earth, who said, stop expanding. And the idea is the Lord said, expand and fill the space, now stop expanding. And like, who can say that? Who can say to the molecules and the elements, like in, the, in terms of a big bang, if you want to think about it, expand and fill this and now stop. And here are your limits. Yep. So here is your, in other words, the measure of your creation. Yep. Where all the other gods are coming in, these pagan gods are coming in and saying, well, like there is no creation ex nihilo, right? There is this nothing, something from nothing. It's always, there's unorganized matter and then somebody comes in and organizes it. And you know, what's interesting is you were talking earlier about, we had first let there be light and only a couple of days later does it create the sun. Yep. <clears throat> and I, what that reminded me was, of was the fact that the earth, we can prove that the earth didn't come from the sun. The rocks that are in the earth, the elements that are in the earth are too heavy to have come from a simple gathering of cosmic dust. We have to be the product of a supernova from another solar system. And in fact, scientists believe that we are the product of up to between six and 10 supernovae from around between six and Six billion years ago and two hundred million years ago, and so we have these we have these elements that are making up the Earth, but they're also the product of huge flashes of light that would have filled up the neighboring universe and would have absolutely destroyed anything. Just like you said, the the shattering. I, I don't even want to say Earth shattering because it's bigger than that. The shattering revelation of so much light and any. Even an angel witnessing such an event would be want to throw himself down on the earth if there was anything there. Yeah, and I find that, and I also find like Abraham. So it's Abraham that wants to collapse, but he looks to the angel for comfort, and the angel can't comfort him. 
But I like the symbolism too. He wants to fall to basically a foundation to rock and stone when he's in that much peril. But there is, in that instance, there is no rock or stone. It's just space. And God is telling him, I'm the creator of heaven and earth. I'm the foundation. When you want to throw yourself onto something, yeah, you, it's our natural, natural if you incline. build on the rock, that is yep. the rock you're building on. Yeah, it's our natural inkling. If you have bad news, to sometimes just fall to the earth. Yes. And, and I, I find that a fascinating symbol right there. Yeah. And we talked last week about Kolob and Coco Beam and the stars and, and the orbits, how yep. one star is in orbit around another and the things that are in orbit, the the central body doesn't depend upon the or, upon the satellites. So the sun doesn't depend upon the earth and the earth doesn't depend upon the moon and the, and the center of the galaxy doesn't depend upon the sun. It's the other way around. And yep. so we're in orbit around God. And so if you want to think of it in terms of gravity, we may not be directly attracted to God's gravity, but nevertheless, we depend upon him every bit as much as we depend upon the earth. We think what we want to do is to throw ourselves to earth because that is what we've known ever since we woke up inside the veil. But the truth is that God is our planet. He's our, he's our everything. He's our foundation. He's our gravity. Yeah, we get a lot of symbols of, you know, altars being made of stone because the stone is always a symbol of Christ. And, but yeah, like just like we're talking about Kolob, there's zones and there's responsibilities within those zones. And that's the whole idea of Kolob. People get a lot of wrong ideas. They try to read into the word day where they'll say like, well, there's seven days at seven exact days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or it's, no, it's Kolob. It's a thousand. And it's, okay, well, then it's seven exact thousand years. Seven thousand years. But even Let's in our culture. Let's do the math based on that. Yeah. Even in our culture, we, we have words for the word day or uses for the word day. They don't always mean exactly. And it's the same back then, especially like Yom doesn't mean exactly 24 hours. Like if I were telling you a story, I might say, you know, in my grandpa's day, they did this. And then in my dad's day, and then in my day, in my college days, but what was the date of that day? (laughs) What 24 hour period are you talking about, Bri? Yeah. And if you fast forwarded, you wouldn't go back and say, this guy said this. And what he meant is his grandpa lived a day. Right. And then his dad lived a day. Right. Or if I met like this awesome girl and I said, Hey Mark, this girl's awesome, man. You got to meet her. Like she's a 10. You wouldn't go, oh my heck, she's just dress size 10. Like you don't read everything literally, but we try to do that with a lot of this. And when we understand it more symbolically, it all makes way more sense. Yeah. Okay. So seven, were they seven distinct creative periods or could the Lord have been working on some of them simultaneously? So uh, yeah, in a sense, like, right. Like you've got certain things have to happen before the next thing happens. If you want to think about it physically. And I do think that there are six periods Okay. With the day of rest. And really interesting about rest is that back in that culture, rest meant to, to rule and reign, to sit on your throne and rule and reign. Okay. So when the Lord takes his rest, it doesn't mean he stops doing his work. It means that now the creation is done. He can now sit there and rule over his, his kingdom. He's finally done with the first part of the job. And now the real business of governing takes over. Yep. But the nice thing is, is he puts us in charge of the earth. So we also have these responsibilities of governing. It's not just us taking care of him, like a, but it's, it's us going, okay, what would he want us to do? And almost in the way, so we and don't have, what should we do? Yes. And we don't have in our Bible, the same ideas that are in the Pearl of Great Prizes, which is the Lord said to them that were with him, let us go down and take of these materials. So it, it gave us the idea that there were a lot of people involved in creation. Oh and yeah. As we're, as you're talking about the 
the parallelism inherent in the creation, I'm thinking it seems almost as though God is creating another parallelism between God and man by involving us in the creation and by involving us in the governing of the world, by giving us dominion. He's saying to us, you are little gods. You have, you have the ability to choose. You have the ability to create. You have the ability to govern. You have everything that God has. Now go forth and do it. And you have the ability to increase in, in number and to fill the measure of your creation exactly as I've just done. Now you go and do. Yeah, and there's, and that reminds me, there's, speaking of Midrash stories that are very Mormon, but don't seem to match up with a lot of Christian stuff. That's what, in many ways, it's like, we're really close to the Jews, I feel like, and I have a real affinity for Jewish literature for that reason. But there's the description of laying out the, the veil. It's called the curtain, the firmament, and there's this description, and there's very specific angels on each corner. There's Jehovah on one corner, there's Michael on one corner, there's Melchizedek on a corner, and there's Gabriel on a corner, and they're each are pulling it tight and laying it out. And I find that just amazing that here's this description of creation with angels all helping, and yet, you know, they're obviously like we're a part of that on some level, maybe delegated down quite a bit, but somewhere. Yeah, and not all of them can be God. Jehovah's the only one that's God, so everyone else is one of God's assistants. Yeah, and and, uh, even and there's Elohim no reason is that they're the great architect. Who uh, Elohim is called the great architect. So when you read the first verse, the word Bereshit, it's an odd word, but the one one of the reasons that uh, they talk about using it is because in effect, it's basically saying it's like a conjunction of He created six, and who's He? They they say the great architect. So it's a way of saying like, in the beginning. Not the beginning of the world, but in the beginning of everything, he, the great architect, created six. And now let's talk about those six zones and start filling them and giving them function. And, and to go on with what I was saying earlier, to take those six zones and then put man in the way he does, uh, it feels to me like the, me- the message, the central message of all of this parallelism is to express the idea that man is on his way to becoming like God. Yep. So let me share a couple of my favorite symbols some of the things, some of the big lessons that I learned, um, and one is just this idea of heaven, and the word is shemaim, and the and the rabbis talk about how it's a conjunction. So we take the word mayim out, which is water, and we're left with the word esh, which is fire. And the lesson is is that heaven is a combination of fire and water, meaning opposites. Fire goes up, water goes down. Um, but there's symbols for justice and mercy, and a lot of times Jehovah is associated with water or mercy. And Elohim is associated with the fire or the justice. And so just like when I think about myself, you know, in the great heavenly court later, you know, there's going to be, you know, Jehovah, Jesus is the one that's advocating for me to have mercy to fight against the great law of justice. But heaven's a combination of both of those in perfect harmony. And I, man, that's a interesting symbol. Just from the word Shemaim or heaven. Wow. And another one, um, this idea of, the firmament being the horizon. Um, it's sometimes described as both thick and thin. And it's the idea of it being thin is that it's so thin, it's right here. The heaven is literally right here. But it's also thick in the sense that you can't cross it on your own. And it's sometimes described as a 500-year journey. Like, I could walk my whole life and I'll never get to the horizon. And similarly, I can't just on my own get to heaven. I need these bridges. And there's some bridges that are described that are 500-year bridges. And one is the tree of life. It is described as being 500 years journey from one end to the other. And it's the bridge that bridges this gap. And the tree of life is Christ. 
And that is, I mean, that's such a, a powerful Mormon symbol that you would not expect from something at 600 BC. And the whole idea of a temple, you have a temple is, the definition is where heaven meets earth. And they're often mountains. And when Abraham builds his first altar, which is on Mount Moriah, which is where the, the temple is later to be built, he's basically saying this is where the temple is going to be built. But for now, I'm building an altar. He gives it a name. He calls it Jehovah Jahari, which the King James Version makes a little bit of a translation. But in Hebrew, it's in the temple, there is vision. And I love that so much because if you think about the horizon and there's heaven above and then we're, on, we're below that, the mountain is what breaks that horizon. And we could build towers like the Tower of Babel and try to get kind of make our own way to heaven, but it never really gets us there. Instead, we need the temple, this mountain. And I love that phrase where there is, you know, um, in the temple, there is vision, which is almost like in Psalms where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And the idea is when I go to the temple, my problems are still there. When I go back down from the mountain, I still have the same issues. I still have the same problems. But if anything, now I can see out and above them and I get a more eternal perspective. I see where true north is and I go, okay, that's where I need to go. Now when I go back down, I know where to go for a while and then I'll come back and I'll get a vision again and I'll see where I need to go and then I can go back down. And it's that mountain that breaks the horizon that in a sense on earth, we get a chance to extend the horizon. Yeah. Kind of get out of the, in a sense, cross the veil and get a little bit of a glimpse of the great temple of heaven. This, this, uh, treasury of light and give me some some umph and some direction on where to go well that brings up a question i've been wanting to ask you the entire time and i know we've been talking about the contrast between today's scientific mind and the ancient function-based mind but maybe you've heard of the idea of the principle of uncertainty where if you're observing something you can actually oh, change I love it that. yes i found that the most fascinating thing when i was in school so i wanted to ask you it says so many times during Genesis, God saw this, that it was good. And I don't know why, but I just thought maybe God is changing things by looking at them. So first two questions, what would you say? Do you have anything to say about the fact that God looked at things? What does that mean that he kept looking at them and saying that they were good? And second of all, does God change things by looking at them? You know, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'd be interesting to hear what you think. Um, but a lot of perfect, the idea of perfect is complete. And so in effect, he's saying, okay, that's perfect. It's complete. Ketov, it's good. I'm looking and in at English, the, not, not everyone knows this, although it seems pretty simple. The root of the word good is God. Good means something that comes from God or part of God. So when God looks at something, exactly what you're saying, he's saying this thing is perfect. Yep. And so in a sense, we could say, yeah, he's proud of his work and that's, that's amazing. But also too, he's saying... It's perfect. I did this phase and I did that phase. And there's a fascinating book. If I could think of the name, I'll have to email you. But it's, it's basically on, it's, I think it's called The Improbable Earth. And it's a book written by a physicist that basically says, all of these things in physics have to happen for the earth to exist. And if one little thing is different, if the earth is at a slightly different degree on its rotational axis, if the moon yeah. is slightly forward or backwards, if it's not exactly where it is, the earth cannot exist. Yeah, Life can't all of exist. these variables have to have the exact right value Yep. within hundreds of decimal places of percentages of likelihood and they all have to be exactly right or, or yeah, life doesn't develop thing. on the earth. You could talk about a hundred things about the moon of why it's, and every little one of those things has to be a certain way or else the earth doesn't exist and we don't exist. Or it doesn't foster life. Yeah. And so I look at this without, without helping it with my Western mind and going, you know, there's a recipe, A and then B and then C. 
And you can't get to C without A being perfect and without B being, being perfect and without C being perfect. And Oh, I see what you're saying. And so in, in many ways, I feel like in the physical sense, the Lord's saying, yep, all of this is perfect. And now we can move on to the next phase. Okay. But at the same time, too, I mean, there's a whole spiritual aspect of that, too, of it's really hard for us to focus on a bunch of ways to self-improve and we have to initially individually work on one thing we get good at that we work and see on that it's thing. good yep well i yeah and i didn't mean to stump you with the uh uncertainty principle but i don't know why it just it just occurred to me while we were thinking about this and i wanted to ask you what it means that god saw that and and said that it was good and i thought wouldn't it be interesting if god changes things by looking at them and obviously he's always looking at everything so that is interesting but on the idea of looking we can jump to the creation of man and woman. Okay. Um, Let's finish off with that. Yeah. So the Lord creates man and woman almost like a Siamese twin in a sense. And then he separates them and then brings them back together. So there's just, there's always these divisions. There's a physical connection to start out with. Yes. Yeah. But there, and, and that's the word they actually use back then is Siamese twin. We don't know how, you know. And this was long before the creation of Siam. So it was <laughs> really prophetic. So it's, uh, we don't like, we don't really believe that women are, are made out of a rib. You yeah. Know, this is all just symbols. So what is the symbol? But the idea is that man isn't whole alone, that he needs this helpmeet and that she's his opposite, but equal. That's the idea of this plank, the word plank or rib is that she's his opposite, but equal. She's like his mirror image. And you suggested like a relationship book years ago and where it talks about basically monocular vision versus binocular vision. And that the male way of looking at the world is basically like seeing things with one eye. Like you can't fully see three-dimensionally. And same with a woman alone. She can't see. But when you come together with marriage, you are distinctly coming with monocular vision. Now can see the world uniquely differently and almost three-dimensionally. And that's this whole idea here is... Yeah, what the, what the brethren said about uh, same-sex couples a couple of years ago keeps keeps ringing through my head as you're talking because they said every child has a right to a mother and a father right and these two parents are both important and they're not interchangeable and that's because you can't get a woman's perspective if you don't have a mother and you can't get a man's perspective if you don't have a father now are there families where that can't happen and do we do the best we can of course but the ideal is the ideal and that's what we're shooting for is to be able to have that binocular vision yeah, and so this is another great big mic drop where the Lord comes in and says, men have a role, women have a role, they need to work together, they need to come together in marriage, and together they become a whole. Yeah, and with without fruit, the seeds would never get to the point where they can germinate, and without seeds, the fruit has nothing to germinate. Yeah, and one of the most controversial things that the Latter-day Church has done is to come up with the proclamation of the family, which back in the 90s, wasn't, we, wasn't we kind of shrugged controversial, our shoulders and were yeah. like, yeah, so, <laughs> but now we've got all of this. No, There's pressure to men and women walk away from it, but I'm we just won't. whatever I think I am. There is no distinct difference. It's just it's just whatever you want. And but God's God's job was to create these differences, and now one of Satan's counterfeits is to erase them if he can. Yep, and that's the whole idea. Is erasing distinctions means making things less holy. You know, in the Greek ideal, the root of our word rational somebody who's reasonable thoughtful intelligent we use the word rational it comes from the word to divide somebody who can make separations 
between things that should be separated. And nice. we don't realize when we say you're acting rationally, what we're really saying is you're dividing the things that should be divided. I like that. Um, man, there's a lot we could talk about in terms of tree of life, fig leaves, all that kind of stuff. So, Brian, we're almost running out of time on our creation lesson. I think the final question I would ask is, looking at the creation story as a whole, what is the biggest example you can think of something that makes us either think about the Savior or draw man towards the Savior, or teach about Christ in the creation story? Um, there, there's this theme that we, we need God, right? In, in today's day and age, we have this idea of self-esteem, which is all really about levels. And esteem is a negative thing, really. It's like, I esteem myself above you, you esteem yourself above me. So it's pride. Yeah, and esteem is the wrong, but there's this big self-esteem movement. But really, it's about self-worth. And what the Lord tells so Moses... So self-esteem, if I, if I hear you, self-esteem is, the, is sort of Satan's counterfeit for right. the real concept, which is how do we value ourselves? Right. So you see like TV shows like, oh, this person has bad self-esteem. Let's help them with their self-esteem. And what the Lord is saying is self-worth. You are worth something because you're made in my image. And you become worth more and more the more you become like me. So the Lord calls uh, Abraham a Zedek, a righteous man. He doesn't call that many people personally a Zedek, even though there's lots of righteous people in the scriptures, just like he calls Joseph Smith a friend. And so when I think of friends like you and I, we're such good friends because we think a lot of li- alike and we do a lot of similar things, but we do that because we spend time together. And the more we spend time together, the more we're alike. And similarly, the Lord is saying, I think, if you want to be my friend, learn about me, spend time with me, become more like me, because he's the immovable one. We're the movable one. So we're the one that gets closer and closer to him. And the more we study him, the more we start, in a sense, getting a better pair of glasses, where you got all these other creation stories that have a weird pair of glasses, a way of looking at the world. And then the Lord comes and says, no, here's the right pair of glasses. Put these on and everything becomes clear. And that's what I love about the creation story is it's point after point after point that answers things, not only in those days, but in today's day, it says, here's, here's the true gospel. Here's what's important. Here's what to focus on. Here's your realm of responsibilities and here's what to do. And it's Satan that says to Adam, you're guilty, hide yourself. But it's the Lord that says, Adam, where art thou? He's the Lord's the immovable one. It's Adam that's removed himself. And that's Lord saying, come back. Sure. You've done something wrong, but come back. Let's talk about it and let's move forward. And one last symbol of light is he gives them uh, garments of skin. The, the word is iron or or, it, but they switch the, the letter iron for an aleph, the rabbi does. And it's another pun. Basically, the, the oh, rabbi is saying he gets a, a coat of skin and also a coat of light. And so it's, it's a dualism. So here we've got, there was no death. So where'd the skin come from first? Well, obviously, there's this great sacrifice and that points to Jesus Christ. But secondly... The Lord also says in the scriptures, I make my ministers like a burning fire. In other words, I have light, but if you, the closer you come to me and the more you become my friend, I will give you light. And if you don't have, if your only source of light back in those days is fire, then how do you imagine somebody having light? You imagine them almost like their clothes are on fire. They're burning. And that's, that's this description is when Adam repents, he gets uh, garments of light and and some light knowledge to help him then on his journey back to the tree of life. Well, this has been a truly rich discussion and I've learned a ton. I appreciate all of your preparation and your willingness to, to be here in studio with us. And also I'm just 
overwhelmed by how rich the creation story is. And I'm sure you have many times this amount of material that you could have shared, but it'll have to wait, uh, four years until we do this again, <laughs> done and done. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe we'll have a special episode or two from time to time, but I appreciate you being here. And to all those listening, Bri and I wish you the spirit in teaching your lessons. And we hope that this has been profitable for you. We leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.